American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend Derek Davison. And this is our second free episode on Substack. And we really appreciate everyone helping us with the move. Um, we've already done some discussion posts this week. I posted about some articles I've written. And this is the type of content that we hope to bring to you uh, in the future. So when you get a chance, uh, please subscribe to Substack, um, both the uh, public and private feeds. Uh, we have a lot coming your way. And there should be links in the show description. Um, so there's a lot going on in the world, as there always is. So why don't we just get into it? And Derek, why don't you give us an update on what's going on in Ukraine? So uh, militarily, the situation is not uh, much changed, as far as I can tell, from the way it was, uh, from where things stood uh, last week, uh, where the Russian military has withdrawn from most of northern Ukraine uh, when what certainly appears to be a redeployment to focus on eastern Ukraine, on the Donbass and surrounding areas. There have been reports of uh, heightened artillery attacks on Kharkiv. Uh, there are reports of troop movements that, that look like uh, Russian forces making their way uh, to the Donbass. There hasn't been uh, a ground push yet, as far as I, I'm aware, in eastern Ukraine yet. I don't think the Russians are ready for that. But they're clearly building up toward that, and they've started doing some of the things that you would expect to see, uh, you know, striking. There was a train station in, in the east that was uh, bombed, I think, on Friday, probably by the Russians, although there's some dispute. There was some dispute about that. Um, I think the preponderance of evidence suggests it was the Russians, and, and it is a potentially military target, given that there's a, a logistical, you know, rail hub type of a, a thing there. So, uh, yeah, it looks like they're starting to undertake the kinds of things you would expect in advance of uh, a ground invasion. Mariupol, of course, the the city, the port city in, in Donetsk province that's been, uh, or Donetsk Oblast, which has been uh, under siege for weeks now, uh, still is not uh, entirely in Russian hands. Uh, there was a report uh, a couple of days ago uh, that a large contingent of Marines that were uh, defending Mariupol had surrendered. The Russians were claiming this, that the, like over a thousand uh, of them had surrendered. I haven't seen any confirmation of that, um, but I haven't seen any definitive proof that it, it didn't happen either, I should say. Um, nevertheless, uh, even, even assuming that that's correct and, and a large number did surrender, the city as a whole still is not um, fully in Russian hands. I would expect that to change at some point, although frankly, I'm a little surprised it's um, held out as long as it has. So what does the course of the war uh, suggest to you as we sort of try to take at least a median term view? Does it look like it's just going to go on indefinitely? Does this appreciably change um, what has happened between Russia and Ukraine? Are there any updates on peace talks? No, peace talks, if anything, seem further away than they were last week. Um, I think you're. Uh, it seems to me like everybody's settling in for what could be a fairly grinding extended conflict, uh, again, sort of geographically limited uh, to eastern Ukraine, but, but um, you know, something that could go on for quite a while. There are a couple of other things to talk about in terms of military 
developments, there have been scattered reports of gunfire, mortar fire, shelling, you know, light shelling uh, in a, a few Russian border towns and villages, uh, mostly in the north, in the regions that, that Russian forces have pulled out of. There's no indication of a, you know, anything like a sustained Ukrainian operation to attack Russian border villages, but I think these things are um, noteworthy. And again, there's really no indication whether it's, you know, paramilitaries kind of operating freelance or uh, the Ukrainian military under orders to kind of poke at the Russian border to, um, you know, for, for whatever strategic value that would bring. Um, but there have been a number of these reports now. And although the Ukrainians deny uh, have consistently, to my, as far as I know, denied uh, attacking these border villages. I think there have been enough reports of, of this type of thing happening that it's safe to say it's it's happened on some level. That's that's an interesting development. It could lead to, you know, stepped-up Russian airstrikes. I don't think the, the Russians are going to rethink their decision to leave northern Ukraine, but they could uh, uh, they could take some steps to try and quell that that uh, sort of border activity um, through other means. Uh, the other thing that's notable that happened just happened in the last day or so, uh, the flagship of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, the Moskva, which is a missile cruiser, uh, was heavily damaged. Um, there were reports that it had sunk. That doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, but heavily damaged in the Black Sea. It looks like it's moving, uh, whether under its own power or being towed, I'm not sure, uh, to Sevastopol, a Russian port in, in Crimea. Ukraine said it hit the ship with missiles. The Russians said the fire was accidental. There are, as with everything in this war, disputes about uh, what exactly happened here. The Russians claim that uh, ammunition on the ship uh, blew up. Uh, the Ukrainians are claiming that they struck the missile uh, or struck the, the ship with a missile, uh, at least one. Uh, these are not mutually exclusive explanations, it should be noted. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, if if the Ukrainians were able to hit the ship, I mean, this is a, a massive, um, you know, at least symbolic uh, blow to the Russians if, if that's what happened, if the Ukrainians were able to successfully attack. Uh, their Black Sea flagship. That's uh, that's not a, a, a great indication of, of uh, the war going to plan, although I know uh, people have different views on what the plan actually is. So, yeah, in terms of, of kind of military activity, uh, that's where things stand. Uh, the rest of, of what's happened over this week uh, involves sort of sanctions and uh, kind of Ukrainian-European diplomacy, which we can can dig into if you want. Yes, I do want to dig in just a little bit, but before we do that, one of the things that we had been talking about since the beginning of the invasion was the possibility of this turning into a Syria-type situation where there's a years-long insurgency in which outside powers essentially funnel weapons um, into Ukraine. Do you think that we are seeing a transition to that sort of war or not? I don't. I mean, I think the scenario the 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 scenario where that makes sense is one in which the Ukrainian government is no longer functioning um, at any level, you know, any any real level. Uh, and what you have, what you would have in that situation, I think, is a, a sort of fragmentation of the resistance to the invasion into smaller units, uh, guerrilla units, uh, insurgent units, if you want to call it that. Um, that that hasn't happened. I mean, the Ukrainian government is still directing things. Admittedly, there are paramilitaries 
moving around. Uh, you know, uh, undoubtedly people are aware of that. Um, you know, the, the extent to which they're under uh, direct Ukrainian control is debatable. Um, but I think as long as there's a regular Ukrainian army in the field, the preponderance of fighting here is going to be uh, military on military, which doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't look like the, the serious scenario. So what, is ha- uh, what has occurred with regards to sanctions? And then we'll end uh, Ukraine there. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, there's a couple of things worth, I mean, there's there been, you know, everybody's adding to their blacklists every couple of days. You see a new list of names being added to the sanctions list. I don't think that's uh, all that terribly important to track. Um, but a couple of things have happened over the last few days. One is the um, S&P rating agency has placed Russia in selective, what they call selective default uh, on two of its international bonds that were denominated in dollars, uh, alleging that the Russians have uh, tried to pay for those or tried to make service payments on those bonds in rubles. Uh, which would not be permitted since they're dollar denominated. Uh, this, of course, relates to the the freezing of Russia's foreign currency reserves, which is something that uh, Western com- governments took uh, a step. Western governments took several weeks ago. The Russians aren't in full default. They have time to try and make arrangements to pay that debt to the rating agency's satisfaction. They're also pursuing, it seems like, some kind of legal. Uh, avenue to try and uh, argue that they did make a, make the payment that uh, you know admittedly you know was not in dollars apparently but they're going to try to claim that they they did everything that they could to uh, to make the payment so that's uh, they may be going down the road to a default which would be a real default which would be a serious uh, blow to the Russian economy and and uh, undoubtedly send more shockwaves through just the global economy uh, in general um, at a time when we've already I think had enough of that. The other thing of note uh, that took place, and this was, uh, I believe, uh, Wednesday, uh, a group of European heads of state, basically the presidents of the three Baltic states and of Poland, uh, visited Kiev for another one of these kind of photo op, uh, splashy, uh, look at me, I'm, I'm in the war zone uh, trips, uh, junkets, if you will, uh, to meet with Zelensky. Um, what's interesting about this particular visit is that it seems that the president of Germany, uh, Frank Walter Steinmeier, was scheduled to be part of this trip uh, and may have been told by Zelensky not to bother. Um, and this has to do with some, to some degree, with Steinmeier's own history with Russia. He's known as a sort of you know, friendly, has friendly relations with Vladimir Putin, has, you know, when he was a uh, German foreign minister several years ago, was known for for having a sort of, um, you know, I don't want to say apologetic, but somewhat, you know, uh, soft take on, on Russia, uh, which, you know, you can imagine is irritating to the Ukrainians at this point. Uh, but it also, I think, has to do with the fact that the Ukrainians are trying to send a message to Germany uh, about, you know, maybe shipping more weapons to Kiev, uh, but more likely uh, about Germany's continued resistance to taking the next step in sanctions, which would be uh, an embargo on Russian energy exports. Uh, so I bring that up because just uh, today, Thursday, uh, there's report. there are reports now that uh, European officials are drawing up plans for 
a staged, it would not happen all at once, but a staged embargo on Russian oil. They've already announced one on Russian coal, which is sort of the, the very low-hanging fruit here compared with oil and natural gas. Uh, but oil it would be a big one if if they really do come uh, follow through with this. Um, so, you know, whether you can tie that directly to the insult of, you know, telling Steinmeier to, uh, to stay home, something the Ukrainians deny, by the way, but, you know, come on. Uh, they, it seems pretty clear that that's what happened. So, you know, if, if this oil embargo does come through, uh, you could argue that, that some of the pressure the Ukrainians are putting on Germany or sort of putting Germany on the spot may have had something to do with that because Germany's been the leading voice kind of pushing against this, uh, the idea of energy embargoes. Well, let's stick in Europe and move on to um, Finland and Sweden, which have begun the process of joining NATO. So, Derek, what's been going on there? Well, they've begun the process of debating internally the idea of joining NATO. So uh, Finland and Sweden both uh, right now are sort of in the, you know, NATO friends program, uh, but they're not in NATO themselves. Uh, Typically... uh, both the political elite and popular popular opinion in both countries uh, has been against the idea uh, of joining NATO. But the Ukraine Ukrainian invasion has shifted both elite opinion and public opinion, according to polling, uh, markedly in the direction of uh, rethinking that and actually joining NATO. We have to analyze the situation to see what is best for Sweden's security for the Swedish people in this new situation. And you shouldn't rush into that. You should make it very seriously. So there was, uh, on Wednesday, Prime Minister of Finland, uh, Sena Maren, I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing that right, uh, visited uh, Stockholm to meet with uh, her counterpart, her Swedish counterpart, uh, Magdalena Andersson, uh, for a discussion about both countries' kind of interest in or the process uh, of maybe exploring NATO membership. They were they stressed to reporters that they're not going to work. Uh, in collaboration with one another. In other words, it's not going to be like one goes in, they both go in. Uh, there could be a scenario where one decides to go in and the other one decides to stay out. Um, but they they do seem to want to, you know, be in communication with one another as they start this process. And so basically, uh, they've both made suggestions that uh, they're going to undertake a, a robust and kind of urgent domestic uh, debate, but I think both on the political and and kind of public levels about potentially joining NATO. There's a summit in June, I believe. There's a strong possibility that uh, at least one of the two, these two countries, if not both, uh, will have some decision on whether or not they want to pursue NATO membership by the time of that summit. Um, you know, obviously, we'll have to to wait and see. But this is, uh, you know, again, I, I know, you know, people are. Uh, torn about the idea of Vladimir Putin being an evil genius or whatever, uh, or, you know, just a genius in general. But this would uh, be, a, a, I think, uh, a big backfire from the Russian perspective. I mean, part of the reason for invading Ukraine uh, was to demonstrate to other countries like Finland uh, in particular uh, that might be thinking about joining NATO that this is a bad idea. And if it winds up driving Finland and, and or Sweden uh, into NATO, that's that's a major 
um, you know, that, that that's a major negative development in terms of Russian foreign policy. Do you think that's actually partially a consequence of the poor performance of the Russian military? That if, if Russia had gone and decapitated the government, things might be different? Is this basically Finland and Sweden essentially saying it? We're not, it's ironic that we're not, we're actually not scared of them enough to not join NATO. It's possible. And again, I mean, you know, you get people uh, who will argue that the the Russians are doing just fine militarily. So I don't want to, you know, burst anybody's bubbles here. But that that certainly is possible. I think the perception. Right. It's mostly perception that they've done poorly, which, you know, is is more salient to me than the the, you know, the reality of whether or not they have actually uh, performed poorly. The perception uh, may be feeding some of this for sure. So. During the Cold War, of course, Europe was divided between two power blocks. It seems like some uh, situation relatively similar is starting to happen now, but the difference is is that Russia is way weaker than the Soviet Union. So do you think this has long-term implications for the European security situation? Because it's interesting that you're having this basically Western power block that is just overwhelmingly more powerful than the Russian side of the equation. Um, It is interesting. I mean, you know, I look at this in terms of, you know, what does it mean for not just the relationship with Russia, but in terms of these plans to do like an EU uh, security force that's independent of NATO? What does it mean if you, you know, uh, if NATO expands further than the European Union, basically? Uh, you know, does that impact these other ideas of, of kind of doing something independent of the United States? Um you know, I, I don't want to suggest that it's an absolute guarantee uh, that these countries will get into NATO. Uh, it's highly likely. Uh, I think, you know, it's it's um, more likely than not, certainly. But there is a possibility, given that NATO expansion has to be done unanimously and that Russia still has at one, basically, maybe one and a half friends uh, in NATO, and I'm talking about Hungary, uh, it's possible that the Hungarian government could try to stand in the way here. Uh, that could lead to all sorts of interesting developments inside NATO because I would imagine the other 29 NATO members would happily trade Hungary for either Finland or Sweden uh, at this point. Uh, so if the Hungarians do would stand in the way uh, of expanding into these two countries, one of these two countries or both, uh, I think you could see some sort of, uh, some revival of talk about uh, expulsion. There's no formal mechanism for expelling a member in in NATO or in the North Atlantic Treaty, but there have been legal arguments made uh, more often with respect to Turkey than, than any other member uh, th- that you could declare a country in breach of the terms of the North Atlantic Treaty and, and get them out of the organization in that way. Uh, we could see, uh, you know, a revival of interest in something like that if it if it uh, if this turns out to be a divisive uh, issue. Uh, thanks, Derek. So let's move on now to Pakistan and Imran Khan's loss of uh, the Pakistani prime ministership. Uh, yes. So I think uh, the last time, uh, last week when we spoke, the, the Supreme Court had just uh, ruled that Khan's attempt to avoid a no confidence vote uh, by dissolving parliament and going to a new election uh, was illegitimate. Uh, th- that led to a vote uh, on Sunday uh, on, you know, or led to a no confidence vote, vote on Sunday that Khan lost. He He's now been replaced by, uh, I would argue, probably a fairly tenuous 
pan-opposition coalition led by the leader of the Pakistan Muslim League, uh, Shahbaz Sharif, who is the uh, younger brother of former Pakistani Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif. Khan is is continuing to sort of press his claim that uh, the United States has been behind all of this and that they conspired with the opposition to oust him. He hasn't produced any evidence of this. It's some, you know one of these things that's sort of not out of the realm of possibility. But uh, uh, to my knowledge, he hasn't produced any any evidence to support that claim. And even the Pakistani military, which uh, until fairly recently supported Khan by all accounts. Uh, seems to have poured some cold water on that today. They're saying uh, there was no collusion with the United States or or anything like that. Uh, No foreign element. Derek, quick question about that. What would be the purpose of the United States is doing that? Because it seems like both sides of the the ledger here would prefer to draw closer with China than the U.S. Uh, Well, Khan has been particularly tight with Islamists, parties in Pakistan, and that means uh, supporting the Taliban in Afghanistan, the Taliban government in Afghanistan. I think that translates into that. So there may be some hope uh, that a non-Khan-led government uh, would be more inclined to back this kind of international shaming or isolation or whatever it is that the United States has tried to do right now uh, with respect to the Taliban government. Um, I, you know, I, I, you're right on the, on the big geostrategic issue of China, both sides here are, um, you know, inclined to uh, maintain a good relationship with China, which is not obviously something that's in the United States interest. Uh, But I think at the margins, uh, Khan was, was, uh, maybe the lesser of or the the greater of two evils from the from the U.S. perspective. So, speaking of China, why don't we talk about this new security deal um, that China has made with the Solomon Islands? But before we do that, Derek, I want to get your take on an issue because I've been um, thinking a lot about U.S.-China relations recently, and and you know, there's obviously a lot of discussion in the media about you know China's intentions, and it seems to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, that China has invested in its military, but primarily with regards to protecting its very near abroad off of its coasts. It's it's done some navigations in the South China Sea and, and East China Sea and uh, challenged some um, other nations' claims to various islands, um, but not in, in a super aggressive way, uh, and that it has actually scaled back the Belt and Road Initiative significantly in the past several several years. So it does seem that if one actually looks at what China has done, it's not even making a bid for regional hegemony, let alone the type of global hegemony that we hear about in the United States. As a general understanding of, of, of what China has done, would you agree or disagree with that characterization? Uh, I get. I feel like they pulled back. I don't know how much of it is attributable to COVID. Um, you know, I mean, as you know, uh, the Chinese government has gone, you know, all in on this sort of zero COVID uh, policy, which means, you know, locking everything down, uh, you know, locking entire cities down over just a handful of cases in some uh, some instances, uh, and and that's that's had a, a, a big impact on in terms of uh, you know their ability to to you know continue manufacturing things in terms of their ability to uh, kind of sustain 
uh, operations abroad, you know, in terms of the Belt and Road Initiative. So um, I don't know. I don't know that I would say there's a, a policy shift here so much as uh, they've kind of run headlong into uh, a set of circumstances that haven't been very conducive to uh, expanding soft power in the way that they they were doing previously. But one uh, thing that just to build on that, it doesn't seem like they ever. From there, just military and economic investments. It, it, it just doesn't seem like they were ever set on challenging U.S. hegemony. I think they will. China will. But it doesn't seem like that's in the offing. Is that an incorrect read? I mean, I I, I don't think militarily. I mean, you know, they, they've they've expanded in, into, uh, you know, the they Horn of Africa, for tech, example. They've done some investments. Bit, you know? but, but, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I think the, the emphasis was really on uh the economic side of providing you know uh this opportunity for countries to come to china and get infrastructure funding that you know i mean you you could argue about what what kind of strings that comes attached with uh, i don't think it's any different than you know when the united states offers uh, aid or or when you know really uh the us uh you know goes through the imf or the world bank to offer assistance um so yeah, I mean, I, I I do think the emphasis has been on the non-military side of things, except in in the areas that that you've talked about, sort of the South China Sea. They've made some very strong statements there, and uh, uh, yeah, sort of the the very near uh, abroad, especially in the the maritime sense. Uh, and of course, there've been border clashes with India. There've been you know some border yeah. issues with uh, Nepal. So I it's. Uh, I don't. I don't think they're they're expanding militarily necessarily into, um, you know, let's say the Middle East or, or anything like that at anytime soon. But uh, I think it's it's probably still on the on the cards. I mean, not not a global expansion like the, to counter the United States everywhere, but uh, in this sort of Eurasian belt uh, and and you know even into Africa. I, you know, I, I think that may still be in, in the planning. Um, so let's talk about this agreement they made with the Solomon Islands. Yeah, so this is uh, there was a security agreement that the the Solomon's government uh, announced uh, a few weeks ago, actually, that uh, basically could be interpreted and has been interpreted clearly by the United States and by Australia and New Zealand or the uh, the the uh, U.S. proxies, if you will, uh, in the Pacific. Um, as uh, an agreement to allow China to build a military base uh, in the Solomons, uh, on its uh, on its face, this uh, the uh, the security deal that they struck um, provides for more cooperation, uh, mostly in terms of policing. Uh, this comes, you know, after uh, earlier this year there were some uh, some there was some violence in Aniara. Uh, where you know the Chinese sec- sector of that city was attacked by people who are not in favor of a close relationship with uh, with China, um, you know some buildings were you know damaged and things of that nature. So it's primarily on its face a, a policing agreement, or it seems to be a, a policing agreement that would allow the Solomons to call on China for for help to send, uh, you know, kind of policing assets to, to the islands or peacekeeping assets, if you will. But it could be interpreted as, uh, because it does allow China to 
dock naval vessels in the Solomon Islands could be interpreted as the first step uh, toward a, a Chinese naval base. In fact, even the United States is worried. The White House has plans to send its top Asia official, Kurt Campbell, to the small nation later this month. This triggers a lot of uh, American sensitivities about the Pacific and about China sort of expanding into uh, the Pacific Islands where the U.S. has had, uh, you know, really uh, the U.S. through, somewhat through Australia, but also in its own right has had uh, really military uh, dominance for, for, you know, decades. So, you know, you've had... Just this week, uh, Australia sent its minister for the Pacific to to the Solomons to talk to Prime Minister uh, Manasse Sogavare to ask him, uh, even at this late date, to rescind the security agreement. And uh, Sogavare has insisted he has, you know, he has no intention of uh, allowing China to build a, a, mil- a permanent military base in the Solomons. That he's not crazy enough to want to antagonize the U.S. and Australia in that way. But, you know, this is going to be a, a, a recurring theme, I think, not just for the Solomons, but the entire uh, Pacific region as China kind of reaches out to these countries. And the United States, which I would argue has taken the region for granted to some extent for, for a while now, uh, kind of, you know, rushes to come back in uh, in the, you know, peculiarly or sort of, uh, you know, overtly militaristic way that we we do these things. Uh, which is in the long term not going to work because China is much closer to many of these places. So Much be closer and, and handles these things, I think, with a softer touch than the United States. It just yeah, does. I think so, too. Um, I, I think so, too. The wise policy would, of course, be initiating some form of security transition, but our esteemed decision-making elite will probably not do that. Yes, I would agree with that. Uh, so Derek on that on that happy note as usual everyone thank you so much for listening please enjoy our interview with Emile Chabal about the um, recently held French elections bye bye Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and colleague, Derek Davison. And we're very happy to welcome to the program uh, Dr. Emile Chabal. Uh, Emile is a historian, uh, a specialist in French history at the University of Edinburgh, and he's published on French history and, and all that good stuff. And we invited him on the podcast today because we'd really like to talk about the recent results in the French election. So, Emile, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Um, so why don't we just start at the beginning? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, what is it that happened? Yes. The, the, the simplest answer is that you have, um, we've just had the first round of the presidential election. So obviously in, in the French system, there are two rounds um, to almost all elections, but, but the presidential election runs that way. So what we've just had is the first round, which is um, uh, the the, the the moment when the French get to choose a way wide array of candidates. So um, there were twelve candidates uh, on on display on offer, as it were. And um, what what has happened electorally speaking is that three candidates have emerged as um, the the by far the the sort of most powerful um, electoral forces. So number one at the top with around twenty seven, just over twenty seven percent of the vote, um, is Emmanuel Macron. Of course, the outgoing president of France. Um, in second of place, the pod, actually. Uh, oh, oh I, I see. You're somebody who's been <laughs> been here before. That's good. Well, yeah. hopefully, I'll, hopefully, I'll say the right things about him. But, um, <laughs> the 
So we call him Maca. Be, be, <laughs> behind uh, behind him, uh, Marine Le Pen, who represents um, the far right, one particular uh, tendency on the far right, but but certainly um, the the longest standing tendency on the French and indeed in the European far right. Um, and she came in with just over twenty three percent of the vote. And um, just behind her. Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the representative of the um, of the far left, of a kind of coalition of, of far left, um, both social movements and parties, um, and he came in with um, almost 22% of the vote. So uh, it was much closer than we had expected um, between second and third, and Mélenchon came very close to, um, to, to, to surpassing Marine Le Pen, which I think many commentators, me included, would have I thought was rather surprising a few weeks ago, but but he did very well in the final straights. So I think it'll just be helpful for both myself and probably listeners to delineate between the top three candidates. Uh, I, I think they probably have a sense that uh, Macron is neoliberal, Le Pen is more on the far right, as you said. Um, I think you were referring to a, a fascist approach, um, in a sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, and then Mélenchon is more on the social democratic side. But in the French context, those mean particular things. So could you maybe just delineate for listeners um, who might not know the intricacies of domestic French politics? Absolutely. So um, Macron represents novelty, um, institutionally speaking. Uh, Macron had very little political experience when he was elected in 2017. He had been a minister um, in the socialist uh, administration, but, but nothing more than that. So he was a, a complete newbie. Um, in 2017, and he didn't have any party machine behind him. He created a party called En Marche, um, also known as La République En Marche. Um, and the party essentially brought together everybody who supported Macron. So the party didn't really have a, an identity beyond um, this particular electoral cycle in 2017. Um, and it was it was very much designed as a party that would support the candidacy of this, this one man. But the party drew its personnel from both the centre-left and the centre-right, as well as the centre of French politics, um, if we're thinking along the lines of the political spectrum. So ranging from soft social democrats through to liberals, um, neoliberals, of whom there are not that many in French politics, but they do exist, um, and also drawing from the um, generally pro-European, moderate conservative uh, wing of the centre-right. And, and that new configuration behind Macron was for various reasons, successful. Um, his own candidacy was successful. And of course, in the French system, um, the legislative, the parliamentary elections follow immediately after the presidential election. So whoever wins um, the presidential election then has um, really has got the, the wind in their sails and they usually get a, a majority um, to be able to govern in, in the parliamentary elections. And that's what happened um, in 2017. So Macron is completely new um, and he represents to some, uh, the liberal centre, to some, uh, a, a new kind of muscular neoliberal, um, and to, to others, uh, a, a, a conservative masquerading as, as, as a centrist. So it depends a little bit on where you are on the political spectrum, what you think of him. But, but in terms of his positioning, I think that that's the best way of describing him is, is, is as a liberal. Marine Le Pen 
um, is the exact opposite um, in terms of longevity. Uh, everybody knows who she is, um, and she, and not only does everyone know who she is, but everybody knows who her father is. Um, her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, founded um, the Front National, as it was um, then the National Front, um, in the early 1970s. Um, and the Front National was essentially an amalgamation of different tendencies on the French far right. So some of them were fascist, as you said. Others... Um, came out of uh, the decolonizing moment. So there were groups that were pro-colonial in defense of French Algeria. Um, those groups obviously defeated, politically speaking. Like the military, I imagine, uh, a large part of the military. The parts yeah. of the military, um, people who were nostalgic for the French Empire and for French Algeria. Um, and there was also a strand of the uh, of the, the party that um, drew on a, a, a kind of very traditionalist Catholic um, universe, political universe, that, that's very strongly associated with counter-revolutionary ideas and, and reactionary politics. And what happened was that this weird conglomeration of far-right entities began to become a little bit more streamlined in the 1980s. Um, and uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen was able to lead the party to a series of electoral successes through the 80s and 90s, culminating in the qualification of Jean-Marie Le Pen for the second round of the presidential election in 2002. And that's a real watershed moment in French politics. Emile, can just give time, a little sense, um, just give a little sense of the policies that they passed and, and who is presented as the other for um, Le Pen. And, and uh, so our listeners get a sense of who they were. I, they, they, I think they probably understand what Macron is about. He's kind of an Obama-esque figure in sort of the broad neoliberal technocratic space that he occupies. But so who are, who are the enemies to the French far right? What do they think that they're doing? Are they sort of a national socialist party? Um, are they more of a free market party? Just to give a sense of who they are. So it's changed, um, and that's what's quite interesting about the party, um, and that's why I was giving this sort of lengthy historical digression, because in the 1970s and the 1980s, um, the party was very strongly associated with um, uh, anti-communism. Remember, this was still the time of the Cold War, and the communists were the enemies, um, both domestically in France and at a European and an international level. So the party was deeply anti-communist. Um, the party had uh, a more or less neoliberal economic outlook. Um, and of course, it was very, very committed to um, halting immigration uh, and reducing in some form or another the number of foreigners or ethnic minorities in, in France. And so the party became very associated with, with xenophobia um, and, and French nationalism, certain kind of French nationalism. Is that anti-Muslim in the French context primarily? Yes, it, it has been anti-Muslim very often, also anti-Arab, but it can also be anti-Black. Um, it's taken different forms. Um, but in recent years, so in the last 15 to 20 years, uh, for sure, um, anti-Muslim has become, that, that sort of anti-Muslim framing has become the, the key way right. War of understanding the, basically. the party. War on terror, exactly. So, But in the case of the, the, the France, the chronology is slightly different to, to the US because um, the 1990s was a period of um, terrorism that came out of the Algerian civil war. And so there was there was already Islamist-inspired uh, terrorist uh, activity, as it were, in, in, in France. So, so the chronology goes back a bit further than 2001. But 
but it's absolutely Islam is one of the key issues that has driven the success of the of the far right. The thing to say though is that Marine Le Pen wanted to break with um, her father and wants to break with the image of, of of the party that he developed, and so one of the things that um, that she did um, was really. Um, change the party's foreign uh, domestic policy uh, and economic policy to um, to a much more protectionist uh, position um, that was about the defense of, of French people, the French economy, um, both in relation to globalization and to, to Europe. And so there's, there's a big change in the 1980s to, to the more contemporary far right, which Marine Le Pen represents, which sees itself as really um, the guarantor of the French economy. And so immigration is still there. Um, xenophobia is still there. All these things are still there, but it's packaged within a much broader kind of protectionist language of politics. And that's what has propelled her in recent years to such such success um, in in the French electoral field. So that's it's so it, and that's so interesting just from a macro historical perspective, literally the child of the person who, you know, ha- founded this semi-free market party. Just so the economics aren't the core, you know, ultimately, like in, in a lot of ways, that that's the question you could kind of switch on. <laughs> uh, questions of identity and questions of French belongingness seem much less plastic, as it were. Absolutely. Although even there, um, Marine Le Pen has quite actively tried to scrub the image of her party um, to make it more acceptable. Um, her father famously had been dragged in front of the courts for um, for 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 hate speech, um, for racist hate speech, and also for denying the Holocaust, which was something that he did. Um, more or less regularly in order to get attention. Um, and and he, again, he was often dragged up in front of the courts for that. Whereas um, Marine Le Pen has tried to eliminate those sorts of very abrasive parts of the, the, the parties, both the party members and, and the party's discourse to try and present a more consensual, consensual image. So Emile, did you want to talk a little bit about Mélenchon? I have a question about Macron, but if you wanted to kind of take us through Mélenchon a little. I think that would be uh, good here, and then we can go into some more detail. Yeah, absolutely. So the thing to, to know about Mélenchon is that he has followed a fairly classic trajectory of a French left-wing activist, um, beginning as a, as a Trotskyist, spending time in the French Socialist Party, um, and then breaking away from the French Socialist Party to form a new uh political entity to the left of uh, of the French Socialist Party. And his success has really um, been intimately related to the collapse of the French Socialist Party um, in the last five or so years. Um, and he's emerged as um, the, the figure who represents a more strident left, critical of uh, of globalization, critical of capitalism, critical of the European Union as well. Um, interested in social issues, inequality, um, uh, poverty, um, and generally, and this marks him out from um, from his opponent on the far right, relatively positive about immigration, about immigrants, about um, non-white French people, and, and about Islam. And so all of these issues um, have come to the fore. What does unite um, the far right and the far left is an increasingly protectionist approach to uh, to economic questions. So um, so Mélenchon has um, very much uh, rejected the 
the, the, the social democratic compromise with capitalism that was part of the DNA of the French Socialist Party. And he's moved towards a more obviously protectionist discourse around, um, uh, around social issues, for instance. So what, what happened, this process of disintegration of the, of the Socialist Party and his rise was already visible in 2017. He got 19.5% of the vote back then. This year he's done better, and he's done better because um, he has managed to get votes from an even wider range of different uh, parts of the left, despite the fact that this year there were a lot of candidates who presented themselves um, uh, from the left. So one social democrat, one socialist, one green uh, candidate, um, one communist candidate, uh, and two Trotskyist candidates in addition to Mélenchon. All these people were on the ticket. Uh, but Mélenchon managed to, to gather up votes from most parts of the left, and that's what propelled him to this really, really impressive score uh, the other day. So I have a couple of questions about the state of French politics, um, uh, but I want to start with uh, kind of viewing this through through the lens of Emmanuel Macron, um, as Dan we often do. To, <laughs> yes, as we as we try to do in the that's show. kind of the so guiding. Much. We kind of yeah, view what, everything what would through Emmanuel the lens do? of Emmanuel Macron. <laughs> um, as Danny alluded to, there there is a sort of parallel one could draw between Macron and Barack Obama. Um, you know, they were both youngish uh, when they were elected president. Uh, they came in with sort of a a sense that they were they represented the beginnings of something. You know, obviously there are key differences. Obama, there was a, a lot of identity, you know, uh, wrapped up in that election that made it very meaningful. That doesn't apply to Macron. On the other hand, Macron come came in uh, as as you said, you know, leading a whole new party, not just you know, not just uh, uh, as a young figure within one of the established parties, but uh, you know, in a whole new, uh, in theory, movement. Um, Macron, I think, also came in uh, more openly. Uh, defending the status quo. And it was a different time in 2017 was after Trump was elected. And uh, there was a lot of fears of, you know, the, the looming right wing uh, wave washing over Western democracies. And uh, so, you know, Macron positioned himself differently, I think, uh, in 2017. Uh, I, I want to ask you about the state of this new movement, because I think uh, what we've learned, and you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but over the past five years, uh, what we've learned is that Macron and En Marche uh, seem to me less uh, like a new wave in French politics and more kind of the last grasping kind of gasps of, of a, a center uh, that isn't holding anymore. And you can look at the results of this election, the first round, not just Macron kind of, you know, he, I mean, he, he won, but, uh, you know, there's some questions about, uh, won the first round at least, uh, some questions about the, the kind of uh, firmness of that victory. But, you know, take his vote along with the Republican and Socialist parties, the two establishment prior to Macron, establishment French politics, whose candidates or parties, whose candidates uh, you know, crashed. I mean, the total combined, if you want to call it centrist vote here, is like 35% uh, of the whole. And I, I, so I wonder if uh, if what it looks like from the outside, which is a collapse of the French center, uh, is in your view, uh, does, does that does that reflect what's actually going on? So it's a, it's a, it's a really good question. I, I, I suppose I'd have a historical answer and a contemporary answer which might mesh together. Um, I, I, I think the first thing to say is that French parties are ephemeral. Uh, they're extremely weak. Um, the, 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 the entire structure of, of, of the, 
the French political system makes it such that that parties are not um, they, they generally lack coherence, and you can you can see this by the fact that, for instance, the centre right party you were mentioning, Les Républicains, the Republicans, um, have changed their name, uh, you know, three or four times in the last fifteen to twenty years, um, and. Actually, this this goes back all the way. I mean, it goes back more than 150 years to, to the, the start of the Third Republic in 1870. Um, and you, you you the parties don't have the same sort of power institutionally that, let's say, the Labour Party or the Conservative Party do in the UK or or uh, the Democratic or Republican parties in, in in the US. So there's there has always been a great deal of of fluctuation in terms of exactly who the parties represent and exactly what purpose they serve. And this is exacerbated by the fact that when the Fifth Republic was set up, so the Fifth Republic being this new constitutional settlement um, that emerges in 1958 at the moment of, of, of the Algerian War, um, the, the, the person who sets it up, of course, is, is Charles de Gaulle. And Charles de Gaulle, one of his signature um, uh, approaches to politics was to transcend parliamentary politics and go directly to the people. He used referendums a lot. He, he was very interested in, 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 in speaking directly to the French people. And he felt parties uh, were an impediment to that. They just confused um, and complicated the political landscape. Um, and so part of the constitutional settlement of the Fifth Republic was um, to weaken the power of parliament and thereby weaken the power of parties. And if you look at de Gaulle himself, he did what Macron did. In other words, he created an entire party and movement to support him and to support his electoral uh, success. And Macron, what's interesting is that Macron used the same model. Of course, Macron, when he was elected, didn't have remotely the same cachet uh, as as uh, Charles de Gaulle. How dare you? How dare you say that? <laughs> but but that's what's so impressive is that he he used the same techniques to create this movement. Um, so one answer to this, a historic answer, is to say that this kind of instability of the party system is, is inbuilt um, into the French political system. And it's perhaps not as unusual as it seems, let's say, in Germany or the UK, where the idea of the Labour Party falling to 3% of the vote is just inconceivable because of the way the political structure system works. Um, on the other hand, I think it's true that there has been a recalibration since 2017. And the recalibration has taken the form of the separation between presidential electoral politics and everything else in France. Um, and in the presidential realm, the top four candidates this time round, um, Emmanuel Macron, Marine Le Pen, Jean-Luc Mélenchon and Éric Zemmour, we haven't talked about yet, all of them created parties or had parties, the sole purpose of which was to enhance and support their candidacy. So all of those parties, including the, the Rassemblement National, which is a renamed version of the Front National and therefore represents the far right, which is an actual party, its primary aim is um, to support uh, Marine Le Pen's candidacy in the presidential elections. What else is happening in French politics is really interesting because at the local and regional level, these parties that are dead nationally still have quite a lot of power. The Socialist Party is in control of several major French cities. It controls 
large regions of France, some of which are the size of small European countries. So, so there's a disconnect. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about the, the, the period since 2017 is that presidential politics seems to have moved into a different realm and has left behind the more traditional coalition party politics of, of local and, and municipal um, uh, governance in France. And the two things used to be tied together through the 80s and 90s, especially, um, but they've now definitively broken apart. I think. So that's a gigantic shift. Um, the, the shift to a stronger executive in French politics. And I imagine there's a lot of historical memory in France, you know, between Napoleon, Napoleon III, and de Gaulle. Um, so what would explain that shift, in your opinion? So some would see this as the, the logical outcome of this presidential system in which the French president has more power than in almost any other presidential right. Like in the US, system. it tends over time towards centralization of power in the executive, yes. Absolutely. And 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 in France, there, there isn't a system of checks and balances in the same way that there is in the US. So it's the, the, the president has almost complete control over what's going on below him. It's always been a him so far. Um, so it, it, the, the president, for instance, famously in France can fire the prime minister, right? And this happens when the, the prime minister is from the, the same party or the same political movement as a the president. Then um, you, when things start to go wrong, the president fires the prime minister because the prime minister is the one who's supposed to be executing the orders of the president, essentially managing policy. Um, now, that kind of thing is, is difficult to imagine in, in, in any other political system. So I think there's been a tendency towards centralization. Um, I think the other thing is that uh, France is a, a country with very strong social movements um, of different kinds um, on the left, but also on the right. Um, and these social movements, because parties are weak, these social movements have tended to, to, to either destroy parties from the inside or to create whole new parties. So um, the party behind Eric Zemmour, we can't really call it a party, the party he calls Reconquête, this party is essentially a social movement. Right? It's a social movement behind Eric Zemmour supporting his candidacy. There's a similar thing at work with Mélenchon, although it's a bit more complicated and a little bit more anchored, but there are quite a number of social movements on the left that have converged to support his candidacy. So so I think that's, that's, an, that's another way in which parties are being are being bypassed. Um, and you see it, for, it there, there's a comparison, a good comparison with the Labour Party in the UK, where Momentum, the, which was a social movement, penetrated the party and propelled Jeremy Corbyn to power. But it didn't lead to the collapse of the Labour Party because the Labour Party was too big and too strong and is too important electorally. Whereas in France, um, the, the, the sort of the draining away of the social movements behind the Socialist Party, for instance, mean that the party is just essentially vanished at a national level. So I think that's a, that's a key explanation. Looking at things from uh, the standpoint of the, the left and right wings of French politics, um, one of the, the narratives that developed over the course of this campaign, I think accurately reflecting what the, the polling looked like for, for a long time, uh, was this idea that French politics were moving to the right. You had Le Pen, Zemmour, you've already... Uh, mentioned him. Uh, there, there's been a rightward drift by the Republicans, even though that party's sort of, you know, positioned on the center right. They've sort of uh, drifted a little further out to try and capture some of 
uh, Le Pen's Le Pen's magic, I guess. Um, and and all of those candidates. I mean, there were at various times during the can the the campaign polling had. Um, you know, all three of those candidates at one time or another ending up in the, the runoff with Macron. Uh, I feel like Mélenchon, uh, got lost in the shuffle here. And I wonder, uh, if, if his somewhat surprising performance, I think, to come as close as he did to, to making it into the runoff, uh, if you think that complicates this idea of, uh, kind of a, a you know, French politics tilting to the right and, and maybe suggests, uh, it's not just the right, that things are active on on both flanks, let's say. So I wish that were true. Um, <laughs> I, I think broadly speaking, I tend to 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 buy the theory of of a right-wing drift. The French have a term for this. They call it droitisation, um, you know, literally rightization. Um, yeah, right, right. You know, no good English translation, but... Um, but I, I think it's true, and particularly in, in this campaign, what was really striking was that um, most of the competition seemed to be between right-wing candidates. So Éric Zemmour fighting against Marine Le Pen, fighting against Valérie Pécresse. Macron himself had to position himself to the right, and his presidency has gradually leaned more to the right anyway. Um, and so to, to people on the left, it really looked as if the left was not even part of the conversation. I mean, never mind having any kind of electoral way. I, to some extent, Mélenchon's score nuances that. I, the, the problem is at a macro level, it perhaps flatters the left because he did that by uh, siphoning votes from all the other left-wing candidates, which means that actually if you tally them all up, uh, you're reaching maybe 30% or so, more or less. Um, and 30% is not a very good performance for the, for the French left historically. So I think... What happened, and this is really interesting in this election, is that the the left electorate, as in left-wing voters, were more strategic than the candidates who thought uh, they were representing them because there were a very wide range of candidates. Um, a lot of different tendencies within the left were represented in these different candidates, but left-wing voters made this strategic choice to vote for Mélenchon in the hope of um, consigning uh, Marine Le Pen to, to the first round and, and getting Mélenchon through, just so that the left would be part of the conversation. And the reason, in a way, I was surprised... How did they organize that? Like, I wasn't organized. How the hell did they organize... It was so... This is a spontaneous revolution. I mean, yeah. not a revolution, but a spontaneous... That's really interesting. And one of the things that, that's interesting... So I think it was spontaneous, and it also came from different parts of the left, right? Um, so... For instance, there are many people on the moderate left who did really dislike Mélenchon. He's quite a he's quite a sort of controversial character. He's very much a sort of uh, you know, chalk and cheese marmite kind of character. A lot of people don't like him as a person, um, especially those on the the moderate left. But I think many um, voted for him uh, in the hope of having. Uh, the left as part of the conversation. And the other thing that happened, which we're now seeing evidence of it in the kind of post first round polls, is that um, the fear of um, the two far right candidates, but especially Eric Zemmour, who had a much more abrasive, obviously racist, um, uh, you know, platform, that fear actually drove non-voters, um, traditional non-voters in urban areas, um, you know, from impoverished urban areas who tend to vote in very low numbers, it drove them to the polls and it drove them to vote for 
for Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who they, they thought was somebody who would, they could get on board with. And, and that's really interesting. And that may well explain why he got these extra percentage points, because he, he did very, very well in some parts of French cities, in parts of Paris, suburban Paris, parts of uh, Marseille, um, what are known as a quartier populaire, the working class neighborhoods. He did exceptionally well in those areas. And that wasn't organized. That was that was spontaneous. I already know the answer to this, but but uh, I, I feel like I do. But I, I would like you to uh, break it to us anyway. Uh, the the obvious course to me uh, going into the runoff now would seem to be for Macron to try to appeal to Mélenchon voters who might be inclined to stay home. I suspect he is instead going to try to out conservative Marine Le Pen uh, to get right-wing voters over to his side. Uh, how do you think he's going to approach the runoff? And is there a chance that the French left could still be part of the conversation uh, over the next couple of weeks? I think they will be part of the conversation. And that that's it. it's quite interesting because a, a lot of... Essentially, Macron's margin of victory is going to depend on what the left do. Um, and by the left, I mean not left-wing candidates, but by all these voters who turned out to vote for, for Mélenchon. And so if the vast majority of them do vote for Macron, then he will be returned handsomely. We're talking, you know, probably 57, 58, maybe even 60%, um, a really comprehensive victory. If a very large number of them abstain, um, then it could be much, much tighter um, and, and, you know, maybe potentially even dangerously tight. Um, so they're already part of the conversation. The question is, how does Macron play it? Um, there are some signature policies of his uh, which are extremely unpopular on the left. Um, so one of them uh, <laughs> is raising the retirement yes. age. Yes. Raising the retirement age to 65, right? And, and this uh, is, I think this you should raise it to unpopular. 85. Derek just took a vacation. I was very much against that. <laughs> There, there are candidates for you in the French political system. We, we could find those who want to raise. That's right. I should. I knew I should, was being wasted here in the United States, and I should move to France. My great grandmother was France. Uh, was French. Uh, she left in a hurry, but she was French. <laughs> so those are the sorts of issues which um, he may have to 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 go easy on, um, and that will require making certain concessions. Um, I. He's also vulnerable because Marine Le Pen has so far run on the cost of living crisis, and she's been she hasn't really been tested in the domain of foreign policy or really difficult areas for her. Um, but she's successfully managed to make it about the cost of living, and she also managed to make Macron the the problem rather than the solution to the cost of living crisis. And so he's he's got to tread quite carefully. Um, but his one of the things about Macron, which perhaps people don't talk about so much, is He's proven himself to be quite an astute politician, which is not something that was obvious in 2017. It could have just been a flash in the pan, but he's quite successfully cannibalized his opponents. He's navigated between a certain kind of cultural liberalism while also pushing a certain kind of neoliberal style reform. He, he's he's tried to, to, to square that circle and he's done it pretty well under fairly challenging circumstances. And to my mind, the the balance of power after the first round and the likely transfers from, from, from the left means that he, he's going to win probably pretty comfortably. But I think it'll be much more difficult for him to govern 
if he if he does win and he doesn't make significant concessions because a left-wing electorate will vote they will vote against Marine Le Pen because they know what she represents there's no secret about the far right in France this is, there's under no surprises um you know I have grown up my entire life knowing about the far right you know there are multiple generations of of far right moments um for activists so so there's no secret but but I think you have to be you have to be more careful um and and that's going to be difficult to to sell right now I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the dynamics uh, of the first round campaign. And I'm interested in uh, particularly two aspects of this. One is how Le Pen was able to finally emerge after polling, you know, kind of neck and neck with Zemmour for a while. Even Pécresse was, uh, you know, sort of had pulled in front uh, of the two of them briefly as the, you know, likely uh, second round opponent for Macron, uh, in polling at least. You know, I don't want to suggest that polling is necessarily reflective of reality, but, uh, you know, it did coalesce, it did seem to come together for her, uh, you know, by the end of the, the first round campaign. The second thing that, that interests me is that, uh, you know, you can, tr- you can kind of track the, the polling, the first round polling, and Macron, who had hovered in this sort of upper 20% uh, range for, for most of the campaign, got a, a somewhat substantial spike after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I think, you know, the, the reasons for that are probably obvious. Uh, and then quickly kind of crested and started crashing. And I, I suspect it's because he couldn't get out of his own way because not long after that, he was back on the campaign. You know, not long, not long after he got this spike, he's back on the campaign trail uh, going, oh yeah, by the way, I'm going to raise the retirement age. And like, you know, he just couldn't get out of his own way, I think, in a sense. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious about both of those aspects of uh, what went on. I wonder if you could, could give people a little more uh, detail, basically. Absolutely. Um, so with, with Marine Le Pen, I think that she did for the right what Mélenchon did for the left. Um, in other words, this big constituency of floating voters on the right um, gradually coalesced around her. Um, so Pécresse, as you know, did exceptionally poorly, um, and this was a very bad result for her and for uh, for her party um, that may well precipitate the kind of terminal collapse of the party. Um, but many of those voters went to Macron because they couldn't really see the difference between Pécresse and Macron in terms of economic policy and general outlook on the world. And um, and Zemmour, so there was a real kind of media effect around Zemmour, um, but one of the difficulties Zemmour had, um, and this is going to sound a bit funny, is it he just came across as very unlikable, which is not surprising. He was saying pretty unlikable things, but Sometimes people manage to say unlikable things and still appear to be likable, whereas he really came across as not likable. And and the problem was that he was quite good at talking to his people, but he struggled to, to talk to anybody else. And so the 7% he got essentially represents, on the one hand, the diehard racists, and on the other hand, the fundamentalist Catholics. And if you if you look at that electorate over the last 50 years, it's about 7%. Right. So, so this, he never went beyond his natural constituency. So in a way, um, uh, Le Pen was able to, to mop up all of those uncertain voters on the right. And, and that's quite interesting because it shows a certain sort of institutional normalization of Le Pen as a de facto opposition. Um, 
So not so much a normalization of her ideas, but the normalization of her in the presidential context as being, you know, this is somebody you vote for if you're on the right and you're looking for a candidate. In terms of Macron, essentially, I agree with what you say. I think he struggled to, he, he delayed entering the campaign. Um, traditionally, incumbents don't declare until the very last minute, but he was forced to delay the declaration even longer um, until essentially the last possible moment. Um, he felt he couldn't campaign. He was firefighting um, in, in, in Europe um, as, as sort of one of the people who was leading the negotiations with, with Putin or what he thought were negotiations. Um, and, uh, and as you say, then when he did finally get out the starting blocks, it was to, to announce some, some pretty difficult uh, policies. And I think the one thing that the French have always disliked um, is, uh, is not having the opportunity to, to discuss politics and to discuss ideas and people and personalities. And because of the crisis in Ukraine, um, all of this discussion initially turned around the response to the war. And then there were two or three weeks in which um, suddenly everybody was presenting their platforms and their programs. And it, it, was, all, it was all too quick. Um, and there was really no, no adequate debate. And I think Macron in the polls suffered from that. In the end, he did better. He did slightly better than I'd expected. I'd seen him around 24, 25. He came out above 27. So there was a, a, a shift back towards him in the, in the very last few days. But I think that was a problem. It was, it's, it's, it's been a very strange campaign for the biggest election in the French electoral cycle. I think this probably brings us to what will be our closing topic, and that's the social composition of the French electorate and who are they voting for. It brings me back to my days studying the Weimar Republic, uh, where they're, you know, this block of people voted for this uh, person, that class voted for this. So could you give maybe listeners a rundown of what appears to be, you know, basically the composition of the, of the groups that voted for these various candidates? Yeah, I think you can, you can break it down by class, by age and by region. Those are the three really key variables that help to understand uh, what's going on. So in terms of, of class, um, the, the, the cliche that, um, that the, the, the Front National, the Rassemblement National, Marine Le Pen, is France's biggest working class party is true. Right, um, the 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 popular vote, as it's called in France, the vote populaire, the working class vote, overwhelmingly goes to, and this has been the case for a while now, to to Marine Le Pen um, and and to to her brand of the far right. Um, Zemmour um, was never able to get that electorate because he embodied a very different kind of far right, much more traditionalist, more elitist um, than than Marine Le Pen. So, if you think about class, um, you really do have um, uh, a difference between um, the, the the candidate who represents a certain kind of um, affluent middle, upper middle class um, elite in France with high levels of education overwhelmingly voted for Macron um, and the bottom echelons of the social strata um, voted very strongly for, for Marine Le Pen. Mélenchon did pretty well across the board, but that's because, um, and this is where uh, other variables come into play, um, Mélenchon did very well um, at, amongst the working class, uh, particularly this time around, I think. He also did very well amongst um, people who have high levels of education, but poor incomes. 
Um, so if you look at the kind of class stratification, it's quite complicated. People are, who, who will have several years of higher education under their belt, but are still earning, you know, essentially minimum wage salaries. Um, he did very well amongst those sorts of people. And then in terms of, of region, you're looking at different sorts of breakdowns. Traditionally, um, the, the far right uh, and Marine Le Pen have done very well in northern France, um, in the east um, and in the south, southeast of France. Um, Macron, Is that connected to any class position or to some extent, yes. employment position? To some extent. So in the north and in the south, it's connected to um, areas that traditionally voted communist um, and that flipped in the 1990s to voting um, for the far right. It's also connected to areas where um, uh, the the ex-settler community of Algeria decided to, to, to settle when they moved to France in, in after 1962, after the independence of Algeria. And that, that community has tended to be very right-wing. So so there's a number of, uh, of different reasons. But yeah, it's related both to class and to um, a, a broader view of immigration. Um, Mélenchon did very well um, in, uh, in Paris and very well in other parts of of southern France, um, and uh, and Macron does especially well in the West, Brittany, the Atlantic coast, and the Pyrenees. Those are areas that traditionally were um, either the Southwest was traditionally a socialist, social democratic stronghold, and the West um, was traditionally a, a fairly conservative stronghold. So so those are the areas where he does very very well. Um, so th- these are three ways in which you can you can break that 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 vote down. That's uh, extremely helpful, Emil. And why don't we just end on this question? Who's going to win? I, I could regret this, but I, I, I don't see a way that Marine Le Pen can, can, can win this. I, 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 don't see, I don't see Macron hemorrhaging that many votes. Uh, it would need to be something really remarkable. Um, and I think what the first round showed was that um, the French electorate are very good at seeing the underlying dynamics of an electoral system, even when the candidates on offer are obscuring that. And I think most French voters will understand that this is this is a vote between the, the palatable and, and the unpalatable. Um, so and I, I just don't see how that in two weeks, how Marine Le Pen can turn that around. But, but perhaps I'll be wrong. Yeah, maybe this will be a Trump Brexit situation. Well, Emil, thank you so much. We'd absolutely love to have you back. I learned an incredible amount. Um, And listeners, thank you as always. Bye. Bye.